everybody. Welcome back to Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball podcast. This week, however, though, we're going we're gonna to veer off topic just a little bit, and we are going to get ready for presidential primary season. Can't wait for the Iowa straw poll? Well, neither can we. Wait. Jeff. Yeah. yeah. Our show is about baseball. I don't think oh, the primary. Yep. Nope. I did it again. Caucuses yeah. Are, yeah, yeah, I did it again. I, I see what I did there. I'm sorry. Yeah. That voice there reminding me that this is actually a baseball podcast where we're going to talk about baseball is Mark A. Johnston. Hi, everybody. I tell you what, I'm having a great time doing this show, and uh, today's going to be a good one. I agree. Uh, I am Jeff Paulson, your other co-host, and we are going to have a good time today. We've got two great subjects to talk about. Uh, before we get into that, though, we like to just hit one or two topics that we might have dug up and, and found interesting. I think we need to come up with an official title for this portion of the show. I don't know what that might be, if it's like batting practice. Not, or... not bad. I'm going to start out this week, and I'm going to go into grumpy old man mode. I'm going to I'm going to be the old man yelling at the clouds okay. today. So Major League Baseball, now that spring training games are underway and starting to see how people are dressing, this particularly players, Major League Baseball finally abolished the 51% uniform color rule. Now, this is something I've noticed the past couple of years. Uh, players have been kind of veering outside of their lane in terms of what they're supposed to be wearing, especially on their shoes when they're playing. The old rule was that your shoe had to have 51% of your team's primary color on it, except for the Oakland A's who were grandfathered in and allowed to wear their wedding white shoes, hmm. which I love, you know, the all white look. No other team is supposed to be able to do that. And I've noticed that some players have been wearing all white shoes that are not on open the last couple of years. Well, MLB has abolished that and they're going to let you wear kind of more flamboyant, maybe more show a little bit more personality in your shoes. Um, I'm not I'm not super excited about that. I, I are they, do they have to be uniform in some capacity, or is everybody going to wear a different color? This is what's going to happen, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess most people will stick with kind of the traditional look, but they'll be, you know, players wear the, the sleeves on their arms to kind of, you know, keep them warm and, and loose. And MLB, since the last World Baseball Classic, has allowed players to like wear their country flag and stuff right. on that. My prediction is you'll get a couple of players will wear some like really wild shoes and then all of a sudden MLB will say, yeah, those are no good. Just like kind of arbitrarily mm -hmm. say no and start finding people. That makes sense. That That's how the MLB it's a, works. It's a good prediction. Uh, I also found a an interesting Twitter post by a, a baseball writer in uh, Korea talking about some nicknames that they have for players in the major leagues that I found kind of interesting. The the one that caught my eye initially was Mike Trout, who the Koreans refer to him as Pigeon. Pigeon. And Pigeon. And that is because apparently it, it says he had a lot of nines in his stat sheet. So I guess uh, maybe career numbers. And the way to pronounce nine in Korea is goo. And so all those nines together are goo goo goo, <laughs> which is the sound that a pigeon makes. So they call him Pigeon. Okay. Here at Mookie Betts, nickname is Cabbage. 
because bet sounds similar to the Korean term for cabbage. <laughs> bet you. I, I don't speak Korean. But I do a little. Just I. I yeah, oh, good. Then let me let me have you because some of these are in actual Korean characters, which does not help right. me at all. Uh, Albert Pujols is known as the living legend. Of course. Anderton Simmons is known as Bed God. <laughs> wow. Not sure I want to know the reason behind that. <laughs> well, uh, because of Simmons mattresses. Oh, uh, okay. That I can handle. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, Josh Hamilton, who I don't even think is playing anymore, is Spicy Seafood Stew. <laughs> hold on. Just hold on. Spicy Seafood Stew is a nickname. Aren't nicknames supposed to be yes. like less than the normal length of a name? <laughs> well, so they have they have here the the Korean word for spicy seafood stew, and it looks letter wise very close to the word Hamilton. I'm not going to try to say it, but it it looks. <laughs> That's funny. Now here's one you, as a Mariner fan, will really appreciate. Believe it or not, Dustin Ackley has a Korean nickname. College hitter. College hitter? College hitter. Not professional hitter, college Yeah, hitter. that's kind of accurate, too. Uh, Joey Votto, teaching, no, teacher of walking. <laughs> teacher of walking. Yeah, see? Teacher Take a lot of, of pitches. <laughs> so then somebody chimed in with some Taiwanese nicknames for players. Uh, Troy Tulowitzki is nicknamed Rabbit Meat. <laughs> Because Tulowitzki is close to rabbit meat in Taiwanese. Bartolo Cologne is the eight-headed dragon. Eight, eight-headed? Eight-headed. I think maybe he ate a dragon, but I don't know about eight-headed He ate dragon. a headed dragon. And, and then my favorite one, my last one I'll, I'll do here is Chris Davis. So they're talking about Baltimore Orioles first baseman, Chris Davis. Yeah. He is nicknamed the Electric Fan. <laughs> because he swings so much <laughs> but then there is uh they also have a nickname for chris davis from the oakland athletics who spells his name differently and uh his nickname is fake chris <laughs> that's awesome that's I, I was reading about the, the the asian superstition about falling asleep with the fan on too people believe you will die if you fall asleep with the fan on so not the scary that thing. you can add that to the chris davis that's a scary thought legend i always have a fan on finally i got one more thing this is a short one about the home run derby at the all-star game so first of all i didn't know that they'd only been doing the home run derby since 1985 that year, the uh, All-Star Game was in the Metrodome in Minneapolis. They had the high school state champions. They they allowed them to be the, out there in the outfield. You know, during the Home Run Derby, they've got kids out there sure. shagging the balls. Right. So they had a high school team out there. This was the very first Home Run Derby, though. So they just stuck them out there. They didn't give them any direction, didn't say anything. So Ryan Sandberg is up there taking his swings for the National League, and he hits one to straightaway center field. So this kid is there in center field, and so he backs up right up against the wall, and he leaps up, and he robs a home run. He catches the ball on the other side of the fence and yanks it back in. That is awesome. The American League won the, beat the National League 17-16. to 16. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I, I, I saw some interviews. Ryan Sandberg thought it was hilarious afterwards. Uh, the commissioner had uh, Peter Uberoth at that time had no idea. You know, they didn't give him any direction. He's like, it is what it is. <laughs> wow. And a great defensive play. It was a great it was a great play. I think I, I also read that guy went on to play some college ball at St. Cloud State University. Very nice. Probably on the strength of his defense. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. All right, so let's now shift gears. We'll 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 leave batting practice behind and actually get into our topics for this week. Mark, you're going to go first this week and uh, tell me what uh, what are we talking about? I want to talk about the 1908 National League Championship. Very cool. Yes. And now this is not just some random year I grabbed and said, let's do the National League Championship. It was actually a quite an eventful game, and uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff leading up to it. So I'm going to focus a little more on how things led up to it, and then we'll tell you what happened in the game. Okay. So 1908 National League Championship. Uh, featured the Chicago Cubs, and now this is the Cubs team that had the famous Tinker to Evers to Chant. Um, so that was kind of a famous team. Uh, they were managed by a guy you may have heard of, Cornelius McGillicuddy, also known as... Connie Mack. Yeah. So Connie Mack was managing the Cubs. The Giants were managed by another legend, John McGraw, yep. who has done pretty much everything. He did pretty much everything he could do in baseball. So we have two Hall of Fame managers and uh, a couple of real popular teams. Now, what happened, what happened that was so weird is that two weeks prior, there was a first baseman named Fred Merkel who played for the New York Giants. If you're a baseball fan, you probably even know this already, but I'm going to go over it uh, in case somebody doesn't know. Merkel, he was on first base. This is the ninth inning, and this is the Cubs and Giants two weeks prior to the National League Championship game. There's two down, batter hits a line drive, base hit, runner, there's also a runner on third, he scores. Game over, right? <clears throat> not quite. Fred Merkel did not run to second base and touch it. He came off the bag, watched the run score, and headed to the, uh, the showers. I tell you what, the, the Giants are on top of things. and you got to imagine here the fans streaming out onto the field and stuff like that, and Merkel just heads back to the showers, and uh, one of the Cubs players picks up the ball, goes over, steps on second base, gets the umpire's attention, and the umpire calls him out. And when there's a force play like that, and it's the third out, the run doesn't count. So that run did not score because Fred Merkel did not run to second base. Okay, so let's let's recap here. So there's there's a runner on on first and third. Runners at the yes. corners. Yes. And there's a single hit into center field. The guy yeah. from third comes home to score, which should be the, the, the winning run. Right. The batter goes to first base. Merkel, who was on first, he maybe takes a couple of steps once the ball is hit and then sees it go through, sees the run score and thinks, all right, yay, a walk off for us and doesn't doesn't go down to second base. Right, exactly. And so the the, the center fielder sees that and... and they just have to step on the bag and he's out. Right. This this got a force. It's a force play at that point. Exactly. Okay. And with a force play, your run doesn't count. So that's, uh, th that's actually known uh, in previous times as Merkel's boner. 
but since we don't use that word in the same manner anymore, I'm going to call it Merkel's blunder. Uh, or how about Merkel's brain fart? Uh, yeah, that's it. We'll, I I'll think I that. think yours is probably a little better. I, I'll file that under. Um, we'll never ever do that again. Um, okay, so. Now the umpires get together. What are they going to do? Well, there's fans streaming all over the field. The teams are back in the clubhouse, taking showers, getting ready to leave. The uh, umpires take into account that um, there's also darkness approaching. This is before lights. And uh, not before lights, but before stadium lights. So the umpires decided they were going to call it a one-to-one tie. When the National League was asked what they thought, they upheld the umpires' decision. So we actually had a tie game between the top two teams in the National League. So now that's kind of weird, but it got weirder. Fred Merkel, who was actually a pretty darn good ball player. I mean, he's not a, not a Hall of Famer, but he played for 15 years. And he was just a kid back when he made that mistake. He became basically a hermit in the clubhouse. He uh, kind of kept to himself. And a corner didn't talk much, didn't smile. Uh, he actually lost 20 pounds because Jeez. he was so devastated over his mistake. He lost 20 pounds in two weeks, which is a decent diet plan if you're thinking about it. The problem <laughs> is you have, to get, you have to get on a major league team and screw up. But other, you know, if you can do that, you can lose some weight. So that's what we call Merkel's blunder. And it sets the stage for the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. The Pirates, Pittsburgh Pirates, were also uh, in the pennant chase. They played their final game of the season against the Cubs in Chicago. The Pirates had a half-game lead over the Cubs and a one-and-a-half game lead over the Giants. So if Pittsburgh wins that day, they would have eliminated the Cubs and there would not have been this unique game that decided the NL championship. If the Pirates had emerged victorious, they would have eliminated the Cubs from pennant contention, and they would have forced the Giants. The Giants would have had to win their final four games of the season just to finish in a first-place tie. As things turned out, the Giants won the first three of their remaining contests, and then they lost the October 8th game against the Cubs. So it just kind of gets weirder because now the Giants are on fire. They want to win the game. Uh, Pittsburgh's eliminated because they got beat by the Cubs 5-2, to two, and they were in a second-place tie with the Giants. So, the league decided that the game with Merkel's blunder would be replayed two weeks later. And that was, ended up being the deciding game uh, because the Giants and Cubs were in a tie for first. Now, it was fairly controversial because the Giants truly believed they had already won, you know, and which the, the, the run crossed the plate, you know, it was just some weird technicality. But I mean, it is the rules. So, that's life. Um, but they actually refused to play at first. They were, the players were actually very disgruntled, which brings up a question I have for you, Jeff. Can you be gruntled or just disgruntled? Well, and if you, if you get disgruntled, all right, can you ungruntle? You should be able to, but I've never heard anybody, you know, say, oh man, I, I'm feeling great. I'm just totally gruntled. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that brings up the Michael Scott quote of, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So anyway, that was my deviation into weirdness that I usually have one or two of those a show. What happened then was the Giants took a vote of the players. And even though the vote was not unanimous, it was 
a very close vote and they decided to play the game. They also uh, decided to see what the team president thought as they wanted his opinion as well. The team president's name was John T. Brush. Uh, he was in the hospital at the time, very frail, was not in good condition. So both John Brush and John McGraw told the players, it's up to you guys. You know, if you guys want to play, we'll play. If not, we're not going to hold it against you. But uh, Mr. Brush added this at the end. You boys can play the game or put it up to the directors of the league to decide. But I shouldn't think you would stop now after making all this fight. So team president said, it's up to you guys, except if you do it not my way, you're losers. <laughs> so there was a lot of bad blood uh, leading into the game. Um, the Giants fans and the Cubs fans were not getting along well. I know that's hard to imagine. The game was um, in New York at the Polo Grounds, the famous Polo Grounds. There were uh, just in the stands alone, there were all kinds of fights and fisticuffs, as I like to call them. Um, and there were fights outside trying to get in, all kinds of just craziness. And, and the uh, part of the outfield fence was actually torn down by fans who wanted to watch the game. So they tore down part of the fence. And then the crowd went through there, spilled over into the outfield warning track. Now you've got all these people on the warning track. The umpires decide they're just going to put a rope in front of them. And if the ball goes in there, it's a ground rule double. So you've got, you've got a full polo grounds and you've got fans standing out uh, on the warning track. There were a couple guys who really wanted desperately to see the game, couldn't get a ticket. So they propped themselves up on an elevated railroad structure that was right outside the park. Sounds safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, this is before uh, OSHA. Anyway, these two guys uh, fell to their deaths trying to watch the ball game. That's, it's like kind of scary, but I don't think I'd ever put myself in a position where to watch a ball game, I could possibly die. Except maybe, just maybe, if the Mariners were playing game seven of the World Series, then I'll take a little bit of danger just to see that game. Another one, Frank Chance, he was the manager of the Cubs at that time. He got hit with a soda pop bottle throwing out of the, throw, thrown out of the bleachers. And it actually broke some cartilage in, in his neck. So the fans were launching projectiles onto the field. It was mass hysteria and pandemonium. This sounds like the Temple Cup, hearkening yeah. back to last week's episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of fans climbed up to the roof of the stadium and watched from up there. Um, occasionally, some fans would break through the rope and run across the field to another place they think would have a better view. So <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I, I also see here that the estimated crowd for this was 40,000 people, which at the time was the that's the largest crowd in baseball history. And to have half of those, it sounds like, on the field almost. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's nuts. There were also um, groups of fans that ran out onto the field and they mixed with the players and you couldn't see the players for a while. Morgana was there? Morgana was there. She planted a big kiss on uh, Fred Merkel. <laughs> okay, she wasn't there. But I think she would have cheered him up. So now you've got... You've got the fans all over the place. 
almost every police officer in New York City is there trying to, to get things back <laughs> to normal. Um, and oh, and another one that happened in pregame, there was a brawl between the Giants and the Cubs. Apparently, the uh, Cubs were taking BP, and the Giants said, okay, your BP is over, we're going to take ours. And the Cubs were not okay with that. And so it started an argument, and the argument got heated, and pretty soon we're uh, throwing fists, and, and uh, there's a brawl in the infield before the game even starts. So we are just looking at, but before we even play the game, we're looking at some of the weirdest, screwiest things we've seen. There was also a rumor that Fred Merkel had committed suicide. Oh, um, wow. Well, yeah, and, and you know, and the rumor was that he had committed suicide, but it wasn't true. He was so devastated, he actually asked to be traded or sent to the minors. He thought about quitting baseball. Fortunately, he didn't because he played, uh, he was an everyday starting player for the next 15 years. He had a 276 lifetime average with 81 triples and 61 home runs career. And that's good because home runs were few and far between. Yeah, that was the dead ball era. That, yeah, that we many had, home runs is an impressive right. total. We, we have, we had, and this time we had not hit the live ball era yet. He, he was actually a pretty darn good player. And, and you know, he eventually, people still remember Merkel's blunder, um, but eventually he overcame all that and, and ended up being a, a solid player for, uh, well, for a few different teams. Then we'll kind of get into the game now here. Um, the pitchers were, and you'll love this name, Orval Overall. <laughs> Orval Overall. Orval Overall. Was he, he was a spokesman for Oshkosh Vagash? Um, yes. He, he came from the family of, of that made overalls. Or, never mind that. Jeez. Okay, sorry. Anyway, I thought you'd like his name. You like never heard of him. That is a great name, though. I love it. It's maybe you'll name your first child Orval Overall, or maybe not. But yeah, yeah. maybe not. Um, anyway, Orval was up against the one and only Christy Mathewson. I have heard of him. Yes, just dominant his whole career. Won something like three hundred and seventy games. You know, just a dominant player. Uh, but uh, that day was not Mr. Matthewson's day. He couldn't get his curveball to break right. He couldn't throw it for strikes. He said his arm was basically dead. So Matthewson got roughed up, sort of. I mean, he didn't give up 20 runs or anything. Whereas Orval overall pitched an absolute gym. Um, the final score was 4-2 to two with the Cubs winning. How that came about was uh, in the third inning, the Cubs came up to bat, and another mistake is going to cost the Giants. This time, the perpetrator was the center fielder for the Giants. His name was Cy Seymour. Cy Seymour. I wish, I wish baseball players still had these kind of names. I wish yeah. everybody still had these kind of names. Yeah, or either that or um, the ones you went over from Korean baseball. Those are great names too, <laughs> and we we went over the, the names last week on the on the eighteen ninety nine spiders. There were some good ones there too. There were, and I know you're a fan of nicknames too. So uh, I have another one in here for you. We'll get to. Okay. Um, basically, what happened? Um, center fielder Cy Seymour had a little trouble with a fly ball hit by Joseph Tinker. You know what Joseph Tinker's nickname was? Joe. He hit a uh, he hit a pretty deep fly ball to center. And the center fielder, Seymour, for whatever reason, he decided to take a couple steps in before turning back and 
bolting towards the outfield because that thing, it had taken off and he was completely lost now. So he's, he doesn't know where the ball is. He's running straight back. He didn't get there in time, uh, but the ball hit the ground. He stopped it from rolling uh, into the fans. So when he stopped it, he picked it up and threw it back in. And it ended up being a triple. But if he had let it roll into the stands, it would only have been a double. And this is this is at the polo grounds, right? This is at the polo grounds. And I, if, if anybody that knows anything about the polo grounds, or if you don't, that center field was... 400 and I think at one time it was measured at 465 feet. The, the, the clubhouses were out there. This was not an actual, you know, traditional baseball stadium. Right. And it was, I, I mean, I actually just read about it recently. It changed dimensions in center field several times, but at one time it was 465 feet. It, you need binoculars from home plate to see where the wall actually was out there. Wow. So it was wow. hard enough as it was, but then to have play, uh, fans out there as well, that yeah. had to have been awful. It just had to be completely crazy. You know, and then the background from the of how we got there was crazy. It just ended up being one of the most memorable games in baseball history. The scoring was, so they scored four runs that inning um, on, a, on a blunder by Cy Seymour. Um, a lot of people say Cy Seymour was an excellent defensive player, and for, uh, one of the one of his teammates said, 49 out of 50 times, he's going to make that catch." Well, of course, in this game, this is the 50th time. Well, and I'm sure I'm sure all those fans out there were probably not making it easy for him either. I bet. You know, people yelling at him. There's people in your peripheral vision that you don't expect to see on a baseball field. And who knows? I mean, they could have been throwing stuff at him since we've learned that that was apparently socially acceptable at this time. (laughs) Yes, I believe launching projectiles was uh, totally just something people did back in the early 1900s. They just chucked stuff all over the place. And sometimes it hit somebody and broke cartilage in their neck. But that was life. Yeah. The Cubs ended up scoring four that inning, and that ended up being all they needed. Giants were able to scratch together a run in the first and one in the seventh, but uh, the rallies quickly fizzled, and the Cubbies won four to two and headed to the World Series, in which they defeated the Detroit Tigers four games to one. So the world champion 1908 Cubs, they got their World Series, but uh, they took a very strange path getting there. And 1908 World Series, until 2016, that was it for the Cubs. That was that was the World yeah. Series yeah, that until was 2016. Yep. They went another, what is it, uh, 400 million years without winning another one? <laughs> 108 like years. 108 years without a championship. Yeah, that's interesting. But uh, two years prior was the 1906 Cubs who won 116 games in one season. That's good, right? That's good. 160. <laughs> unless you're playing a thousand game season, that's really solid. Now the Mariners tied that in 01, by the way. So, that was that was almost as many wins as the 1899 Spiders had losses. <laughs> almost. So very impressive. That's pretty much the whole story. You know, we hear about Merkel screwing up all the time. 
but uh, we don't hear about the rest of, of what's going on in there. They had some characters on those teams, and there was a lot of bad blood too. So very interesting. That's crazy. I, I, you know, like I said, I knew I knew about the blunder, but I didn't know what went on in, in the, the, the replay and stuff like that. When you were mentioning, you know, running, not touching the base, it reminded me of, of recently when it was, uh, this was when I was actually working for the Braves. I think it was in 1999, I think it was. I remember that it was as Robin Ventura was up at bat and it was a tie ball game at Shea Stadium and he had a grand slam. It would have been a walk-off grand slam, uh-huh. but whoever was on got so excited that he was jumping up and down and never went and touched second base. He went over and jumped on Robin Ventura, who fortunately at least touched first base. So he was credited with a single and one RBI, which won the game. But right. he, I remember Robin Ventura was really mad because he wanted the grand slam, but they only gave him a, an RBI single because he never actually circled the bases. So he hit the ball out of the park with the bases loaded, and he was credited with a one-run single. Yep. Got himself an RBI. Yep. Yeah, I'd be upset about that, too. Not upset enough to charge Nolan Ryan and get punched <laughs> in the head that many times. But, of course, I had to bring that up because Nolan's my favorite. Yeah, you, I, it's been an episode or two since you've, you've mentioned Nolan Ryan. So I'm glad that's, we... That's why I did it now. Glad we got that in there. Mm-hmm. So this... It's very uh, strange that you covered this game, uh, this being the Chicago Cubs, because I, likewise, for my portion, we're going to stay in the Windy City. And you mentioned some stuff that kind of tied right in with what I did some uh, research on this week. And I want to talk about somebody who actually was not on the field. I'm going to talk about a broadcaster, Harry Carey. Gotta love Harry Carey. I'm just I'm just gonna get right into it because everybody, I think you have to love Harry Carey. Yeah. So Harry was born March first, nineteen fourteen, as Harry Christopher Carabina in St. Louis, Missouri. So I would be willing to bet Harry Carey probably heard stories about that <laughs> about about Fred Merkel as he was growing up because he was a big baseball fan. So Harry never knew his father, and his mother unfortunately passed away from pneumonia when he was seven years old. So he was raised by an aunt. Uh, Harry's family, though, was very poor, and he took a job selling newspapers at the age of eight. His biggest joy growing up was taking that, that money that he earned selling newspapers and going to Cardinals games at Sportsman's Park. In high school, Harry was a decent ball player. He played second base and shortstop. He was actually good enough to be offered a scholarship to play baseball at the University of Alabama. But as I mentioned, they were very poor and the scholarship didn't pay for things like room and board or books. So he had to actually decline the scholarship. So Harry continued to work odd jobs after high school. Uh, He eventually became an assistant manager for a sporting goods company and he would still take in Cardinals games whenever he could. But Harry noticed that the games he went to always seemed to be more exciting than the ones that he'd listened to on the radio when he was at home. The announcers didn't feel uh, the game the way I did. 
uh, the nuances and the positions and the, the, the way the pitcher was working and the way the outfielders moved around the catcher set it up. So Harry, being full of confidence, sends a letter to the GM of the radio station that aired the Cardinals games, which is KMOX, which still is the Cardinals flagship station, believe That's it or not. That's way cool. Wow. And so Harry said to the GM, he said, hey, give me a job. I, I can do better than that. So the GM, impressed with his audacity, his moxie, said, all right, come in. I'll give you an audition. So he thought he had a good voice, but Harry needed a little bit of experience. So he helped him get a job in Joliet, Illinois. There, he covered high school sports and junior college sports on the radio, as well as covering summer softball leagues. That sounds like some some great radio, summer softball leagues and bowling. Oh, whoa. Hold on. Bowling. Think of all the different calls you can make. Bowling on the radio. Yeah. And he goes up and he throws the ball down the lane and knocks some stuff over. Strike. And now what's next? Oh, the guy throws the ball down the lane and knocks some stuff over. (laughs) Doing the same thing over and over. You got to be good to be able to announce bowling on the radio. Well, that's just the thing. Harry Carey was great. He was entertaining. He would talk about things, not just what was going on in front of him, but he would just rift on things and everybody loved it. He was very entertaining. So he he impressed a lot of people there. But the station manager there thought that Harry Carabina sounded kind of odd on the radio. So right. he had him change his name to Harry Carey. From there, Harry took a job in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where he worked for, and this is strange, a young Paul Harvey. <laughs> oh, Okay, I just brought that up. Brought I up know. You had discussed Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey, we had discussed an episode or two ago. So, Paul Harvey is very similar to Adam Ottavino and Jose Bautista in that we seem to bring him up every every other episode or so. Yeah, this is true. So, Harry tried to join the military during World War II, but he was rejected because he had he had pretty poor eyesight. So, at this point, Harry moved back to St. Louis, where he joined a radio station there, KXOK, where he had a nightly sports show. And on this show, he differentiated himself from other announcers by not just reporting the news or the scores, but he was also critical of the local teams, and he'd often editorialize. So, everybody at that point was just kind of on the straight and narrow, here's what happened, but Harry would would tell everybody what he thought as well. So Harry started to catch the attention of some other people this year, and that was because all of the eyes of the baseball world turned to St. Louis that year because that was the year the St. Louis Browns met the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. So Harry was hired on as a play-by-play announcer for a minor league hockey team shortly after. He did some other work for a station which was sponsored by the Greasedike Brothers Brewery. And I hope I'm saying that right. Greasedike. Greasedike. This company is still around. They're still making beer. Well, I got to try some of that. So this actually started a long-standing tradition of Harry being sponsored by a brewery of some sort. As we will find out, Harry liked beer. (laughs) 
So the Greasedike brothers were planning on sponsoring the broadcast of both the Browns and the Cardinals home games in the 1945 season, and they wanted a famous voice to be their announcer. So it took some convincing, but Harry was nothing if not persuasive and persistent, and eventually convinced Edward Greasedike that he would be able to keep the fans interested not only in the broadcast, but also in the commercials, which are, of course, pushing the beer. So Harry was paired with uh, former catcher and manager Gabby Street to cover all home games for both teams. Now, this was very interesting. This is something I had no idea about. At this point, there was no such thing as exclusive rights. So just in St. Louis, there were three or four other stations that would be at every home game covering the same game to be broadcast in the same city of St. Louis. Oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> so this was, you know, this was in the, in the time where, you know, road games were still kind of manufactured in the studio where they'd get updates and do sound effects. But right. at the home games, they would send teams there. And so there would just be a couple of different stations there all doing their own broadcasts locally. So Harry and Gabby built up a following. And in 1947, the brothers actually secured the exclusive rights to the Cardinals ah. games. And they got it for both home and road games. So the Cardinals radio network at that time became the largest in baseball. It included 91 stations and people throughout the Midwest listened to the Cardinals as they were being broadcast by Harry and Gabby. So it was here that Harry actually coined one of his catchphrases. Holy cow. So this was used by other broadcasters at the time, but Harry said that he did it because it was the only thing he could remember to say that would keep him from swearing on the air. <laughs> so okay. eventually, the Greasedike brothers sold the rights to Anheuser-Busch, and Anheuser-Busch also bought the Cardinals. And here was born Harry's love for Budweiser. So uh, Harry actually, uh, when he was still with the Cardinals, broadcast quite a few really uh, famous moments. He was broadcasting the game when Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard round the world in 1951. Wow. Now, of course, everybody remembers Russ Hodges because his, his call is the home team call and, and the most famous of that. But Harry was sitting right next to him, separated only by a curtain. He uh, also broadcast Stan Musial's 30,000th hit in 1958. Here's the pitch. Line drive, there it is! Into left field! Hit number 3,000! A run is scored! Musial around first! On his way to second with a double! Holy cow, he came through! He also did stand the man's final at bat, which was a great call. Remember the stance. And the swing. You're not likely to see his likes again. Uh, April 1964. Now, this is a great story here. April 1964. So first month of the season. After a second inning double by pitcher Roger Craig, Harry proclaimed, I can't believe it. Roger Craig just hit the left center field fence. The Cardinals are going to win this pennant. Now, <laughs> this was the fourth game of the season. <laughs> but Harry... He was on to something. They, they actually won the pennant that year, their first in 18 years. 
Wow, that's that's as good of a call as the guy that said, uh, I think it was Alvin Dark who said that uh, we'll land on the moon before Gaylord Perry ever hits a home run. And he, he was accurate. Ten minutes later, after we landed on the moon. Very, very good. So Harry broadcast the Cardinals for 25 years, but he was fired after the 1969 season. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about it, but there were rumors that he and the wife of team owner Augustus Bush III were having an affair. Uh, Harry never actually denied this, but he never confirmed it. He would just often say, I'm just glad people think that I'm attractive enough to have an affair. <laughs> so he was uh, after he was released, fired, let go. He was quickly hired by none other than Charlie Finley in Oakland. Now, I would think this would be a marriage made in heaven. Charlie Finley liked to do things a little bit different. Uh, Harry Carey definitely liked to do things a little bit different. Uh, but this was not a great match. Harry only stayed in Oakland for a single season. He just wasn't a West Coast guy. He still kept his home in St. Louis. Didn't really enjoy the West Coast. The best story, though, that I could find about his single season in Oakland was that Finley wanted Harry to change his trademark holy cow to holy mule to reference the team's mascot. But, of course, that... It just sounds terrible. <laughs> Holy mule. That, yeah, it just didn't happen. So after that loan season in Oakland, Harry took a job in Chicago as the voice of the White Sox. The city took to Harry right away. Harry would oftentimes take a cooler of beer out to the stands and hand them out to fans, sometimes even broadcasting from the stands. And once or twice he did so shirtless, which... <laughs> I'm glad I did not run across any video of that. <laughs> he, uh, he became known as the Mayor of Rush Street, which is a bar-laden area of downtown where he would often hang out with fans long after the game was over, and he'd hang out with them. And now that brings me back to your story, because in uh, Chicago, actually around Wrigley Field in Wrigleyville, there is a bar called Merkel's Bar and Grill. Which is named after Fred Merkel. That's outstanding. Yeah, brought it full circle there. This stuff keeps tying in. It's amazing. <laughs> so uh, eventually Bill Veck, the legendary Bill Veck, who is a show unto himself, which we will do at some point, eventually yeah. bought the White Sox and was already a big fan of Harry's. Veck, ever the promoter, thought of more ways that he could get people into the games and one of these ways was to secretly broadcast Harry Carey singing the seventh inning stretch on the PA system. So every time it was time for the seventh inning stretch, Vec would look over and he'd see Harry mouthing the words. And so eventually he put a microphone in there and just listened to him. And I think everybody right now, whether you're a baseball fan or not, have, has, you've probably heard Harry Carey sing the seventh inning stretch. Take me out to the ballpark. You've probably heard it once in your life. It's, it's iconic. It, it really is. So what he did is he pumped this out to the PA system. And after the game, the first time this happened, Harry comes and, and, and says, what, what, what are you doing? And Vex says, Harry, I've been looking for 45 years for the right man to do this, to sing this song. Yep, everybody, no matter where they were sitting, as soon as they heard you, they knew that they could sing better than you, so they all joined in. <laughs> 
And from there, it was a staple of every single home game that Harry ever broadcast. Uh, a great quote I, I found from Harry Carey about the uh, Take Me Out to the Ballpark. He uh, he explained that he would sing it because it was the only song that he knew all the words to. <laughs> so 1981 rolls around and Vex sells the White Sox to Jerry Reinsdorf, still the owner of the White Sox, I believe. So Reinsdorf announces that he is going to introduce a new subscription only channel to broadcast Sox games on. Now, Harry, being a man of the people, did not like this. He believed that fans should be able to watch the game on TV, on broadcast TV, and not have to pay for it. So, uh, it just so happened that longtime Cubs announcer Jack Brickhouse was retiring across the city that year. So, he contacts the Cubs, and in November, Harry is announced as the new voice of the Chicago Cubs. So Harry went national as a Cubs broadcaster because, of course, the Cubs were broadcast on Superstation, WGN, which was seen at that point in over 30 million homes across the country. So Harry became a national treasure from his time at the Cubs, but his age and his health started to catch up with him as his heavy drinking lifestyle and all the travel and cigars eventually started to slow him. He suffered from a stroke in 1987, which caused his speech to be slurred for the rest of his life. Uh, of course, Harry had a son, Skip, who was the longtime voice of the Atlanta Braves, and a grandson, Chip, who had spent time at several major league clubs before he was signed to work alongside his grandfather during the 1998 season. Uh, unfortunately, though, Harry passed away in February of 1998 before the season began, and that partnership never happened. That's a bummer because that's that would have been awesome. Yeah. Now, and I remember because Skip Carey was one of my favorites, and it, it, it's I just think it's incredible that you know Harry Carey is on WGN and Skip Carey is on TBS, both of which I got to watch growing up in Salt Lake City. You know, I had no major league team, so we've talked about the NBC game of the week and, and Monday yeah. Night Baseball being the only you know, games that I got to see. Well, I didn't have cable until I was in high school. And then, you know, once that happened, I got to watch Braves and Cubs games almost every day. And to have the same family, you know, be broadcasting, it was incredible. And then for Skip to come up, or Skip, uh, for Chip to come up, and, uh, you know, he was around when I was still working at the Braves, it was it's kind of cool to see that legacy and, you know, not to have somebody just be riding on coattails. All three of them, unfortunately, you know, only Chip is around, but all three of them are great broadcasters. So I, I would I would agree with you 100 percent. So that is kind of the end of the the Harry Carey story. Um, it was the what I liked to, about watching games on WGN and Cubs games as long as well as the the Braves on TBS for me it, it was the first time I was actually exposed to announcers who were doing the games every day 
So it was more casual than a game of the week where the announcers had to tell you everything about each player and each team because you're only seeing that team that week. So here I, I enjoyed WGN because, you know, it's assumed that you watch these games every day. So, you know, a lot of the stuff. So it was a lot more casual. And, you know, Harry really endeared himself to fans across the country in this way. So here's a couple of things that I really found entertaining. Some of these I remember and, and others I, I found stories about. So Harry was not a great linguist. He would often get tripped up trying to pronounce players' names. Mark Grudzelonic was the one that he could never pronounce. <laughs> Who can ever. Uh, fortunately, uh, for Harry, Grizzlonic never joined the Cubs until after Harry had passed away. Jose Vizcaino was another one that he had a hard time with, and he was on the Cubs for a couple of years when Harry was around, and that was always an adventure. <laughs> Pete Incavilia. Now, I remember Pete Incavilia specifically for Harry Carey. So, uh, Harry would, I remember it was Pete Incaviglia. 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 <laughs> Which is weird because as a as a Italian, you would think that in Caviglia, I don't know, that sounds Italian to me. Maybe it's maybe it's not. Uh, first baseman and noted steroid user slash denier Rafael Palmero was often referred to as Rafael Palermo. <laughs> Delino de Shields was sometimes called Delino de Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, catcher Hector Villanueva was usually called either Valenzuela or Villanova. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another game that I, I vividly remember Harry playing during uh, during some slower games was trying to say players' names backwards. You know, Aunt Lou's name spelled backwards is Uola. That sounds like a first name, Uola. <laughs> Uh, so Harry was also famous for reading names of people who were watching. So one of those rabbit holes I went down while, while get, getting ready for this, uh, there's a, a YouTube channel that just has entire White Sox games from the, from the seventies and the eighties. And so I'm watching Harry do a pregame show one time and they come back to him and he holds up a stack of letters. I mean, just a fistful of envelopes. And he says, these are all the people that are listening to us from different places. And he starts reading them off one at a time. And I'm like, okay, he's going to get through three or four. And then he's going to move on. He read for three straight minutes the name of people and where they were watching. And then just <laughs> as abruptly, he goes, now here's the national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> that was his whole pregame was just, hey, here's some people. I'm going to read their names. Here's the anthem. Harry, uh, Harry kept a fishing net with him in the booth and would often try to catch foul balls with it. And inevitably, every game, there would be a, a shot of him of the booth up there. And there was the fishing net hanging out. He said he would get one on average about once every two or three years. Hmm. Uh, Harry was a spokesman for Budweiser through the end of his career. After his stroke, however, though, he was told that he needed to cut drinking out. So his Bud bottle was often full of O'Doul's, which is an, a non-alcoholic beer, because he still wanted everybody to think that he was drinking Bud. Uh, the the non-alcoholic beer 
is a little bit of a puzzle to me. It's got all the calories and the fat, but none of the buzz. So if you enjoy it, good for you. And for those of us that don't particularly like the taste of beer, there's just no allure there at all. No, none. Uh, the singing of Take Me Out to the Ballpark still continues at Wrigley today with guest singers. Often celebrities or city dignitaries will come up and take over the duties every day. Uh, Harry Carey's seven restaurants in Chicago are still immensely popular. And though he never got to see the Cubs in the World Series, Budweiser honored Harry after the Cubs won the 2016 series with a video tribute to him with clips of him set to highlights of the series as if he were actually calling the games. That's now, pretty cool. Can you find I, that somewhere online? Yes. And it, yeah, it's 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 everywhere online. If you just do okay. uh, Budweiser, Harry Carey, 2016 World Series. Now, and I remember right after that World Series, because that was a great World Series with the Cubs and the Indians. I remember that commercial came on right afterwards, and I remember getting chills. And I got those same chills watching it again, getting ready for this show. It, it is a really great commercial. They did a really good job. There are uh, many people that do impressions of Harry Carey. His style was very unique. His voice was was very unique as well. Uh, Will Ferrell, of course, is probably the best known for his impersonation, but I have read in several instances that the Carey family is not really fond of it. They kind of see it as more mean-spirited. Pitcher Ryan Dempster, who was with the Cubs for a good portion of his career, is uh, is also known for being great at a Harry uh, Carey impersonation. And he, in fact, is going to be the Toastmaster at this year's annual Worldwide Toast to Harry Carey. This is the 21st annual Worldwide Toast to Harry Carey, which will be March 27th, and not surprisingly enough, held at Harry Carey's restaurant. So uh, to, to wrap up Harry Carey here, I've got a couple of quotes that I've, I've already gone over a couple of quotes that are just great and total Harry Careyisms, but I've got a couple more here. At one point, he, <laughs> he cracked a joke. What does a mama bear on the pill have in common with the World Series? You tell me. No no Cubs. <laughs> uh, at one point, uh, he said this. Scott Bullitt, as he takes left field, is getting congratulations from everybody. He and his daughter are parents of a new baby. Oh, jeez. <laughs> this, is, this is one of my favorites here. We all know the moon isn't made out of blue cheese, but if it were made out of barbecue spare ribs, would you eat it? Ah! <laughs> here. Yeah. <laughs> Harry would often walk into a bar and yell, around on the house for everybody, but lock the doors so nobody else can get in. <laughs> so Harry Carey was just, he was just a great, a great character of the game. This is typical Harry Carey and uh, calling, a, calling a Cubs game. There's a high pop fly Sanchez. He never dropped one of those in his life. He one. just did. He did. Holy God. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, that's hilarious. That's, that's Harry Carey. That's the way he did stuff. So let's, uh, let's move from some really Chicago-centric stories today. Our, our fans in Chicago will 
have plenty to talk about, I'm sure, over the next week with these two stories. But let's now move into everybody's favorite portion of the show, Second Best. Your second best. Better than most of the rest. Not better than number one. Number one is better than anyone. So if you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, This is the portion where we like to come up with a topic. In this case, Mark is going to have a topic. I do not know what the topic is yet. And Mark is going to tell me what he thinks the second best answer is to this topic. And I will do likewise. We'll also tell you what our we think the best answer is, but that's kind of typical of how these work. So we're going to go with what is the second best answer. So, Mark, what uh, what's your topic for this week? My topic for this week is I, I've been listening to a lot of, as we get gear up and get near to spring training, we've been listening to a lot of songs about baseball. So this is my question to you. What is your second favorite song about baseball? Got it. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruminate on that while you, while you tell me what you think the best baseball song is and then the second best. To me, uh, the the song that I love to hear because it's upbeat and it really does remind me of baseball is Center Field by John Fogarty. Without question, that would be my favorite song. Put me and, in, Coach. Yeah, it well done and uh, a lot of fun to listen to, even to this day. My second best would I, you know you know who Terry Cashman is. It would have to be the original. Terry Cashman's song, Talking Baseball. Talking Baseball, Klazuski Campanella, Talking Baseball. I, I do know that song. I'm not going to sing it because as, this the, as the theme to this segment has proven, I can't sing. <laughs> All right. So for me, I've got, I've got two things here. I'm trying to decide what order to put them in. I would, I'm going to go with, with my, what I think the best piece of baseball music is. It's not a song in, in terms of there's no words, but I think the best piece of baseball music is the, not really the theme, but it's the, the main music that everybody remembers from the natural. When, when Robert Redford hits the home run and it, it goes into the lights and it's... Yeah, that is a... I, I, first of all, the entire soundtrack is fantastic. Randy Newman did that soundtrack. And you, I, I think of Randy Newman as a singer more, a singer-composer, but that... the Yeah, it, it is a great soundtrack. It, it is, and that song in particular, yeah. And, and it's so it's so classic, too. I mean, even... Even if you haven't seen The Natural, you probably, well, I'm sure you know the, the, the tune, whether you know it's from a baseball movie or not, I don't know. But sure. um, that would be my, what I think is the best piece of baseball music. Now, my, Jeff, yes. if your second best is take me out to the ball game, I quit. <laughs> well, that came to mind, obviously, especially with Harry Carey and the fact that we've already heard it. Uh, during right. this episode, but I think the second best 
piece of baseball music is a song called It's a Beautiful Day for a Ball Game. Let's go! That is a classic. I love this song. It gets me in such a good mood. What I did not know is that both the Cubs, <laughs> including when Harry Carey was there, and the Dodgers have long used this as the intro to their broadcast every game. I can see why. I mean, it's a classic baseball well, song. I mean, it but... starts off by saying, batter up. We're taking the afternoon off. You know, it is. It's perfect. Especially for Cubs games, especially when they didn't have lights sure. as well. But yeah, I think that is for me. Those are those are I think for me the the two best baseball songs. All right, well that's great. Uh, this was this was a fun show. We had two topics that were I think really entertaining. I mean, Harry Carey is a character, and the circumstances around the 1908 National League Championship game were incredible. Yeah. I had, I had a good time. No, thank you, too. That was fun to listen to Harry Carey uh, and all about him. So, I, yeah, I enjoyed the show very much. I hope everybody else did. Uh, if you could please check out our social media at 2 Strike Noise, that's T-W-O Strike Noise, on both Twitter and Instagram. We will post uh, any sort of media that we've talked about that you might find interesting. We'll do some Korean uh, Twitter We'll post that up there, uh, as well as anything else that we can uh, manage to get up on the interwebs from this show. Be sure to follow us, and uh, we always appreciate hearing from you, as well as rating us on iTunes or wherever you might be listening to uh, our voices. We would appreciate that help. Uh, Mark, do you want to uh, you want to do this again next week? Yeah, what the heck, man? I, I don't think I have anything else to do. <laughs> all right well then for mark a johnston i'm jeff paulson we will see you again next time on to strike noise thank you god bless you good night